Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Hello, Ethan. It's been a long time since you've been on the hedge. (laughs) It has been a long time. Much to my surprise, uh, my repeat appearance is today. So you just ping me like five minutes ago, hey, you want to be on a hedge? Uh, Yes. What are we talking about? And I guess you're going to tell people what we're talking about. (laughs) That's right. That's right. But but we'll get you back on to talk about something you want to talk about pretty soon. Mm. It's just just a matter of me being lazy and not getting anything done. I know you don't believe that about me, but it's true. I'm being yeah, lazy. I think of Russ White and lazy pops right to mind, Russ. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and today we are joined by Federico Lucci Freddy. And Federico, where are you physically? I'm in Boston, actually. Today I'm in uh, Red Hat's Westford office. I came in just so that we could record from, from a quiet location. Okay. Cool. So you're in Boston. So you must live. I knew a bunch of people who lived in Boston and they've all left. I think the big dig had something to do with it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was a pretty difficult time for traffic, but it's way behind us. So you did a talk at Open Source Summit about the taxonomy of indecision. And I guess we just start with this concept of decision making in corporations or in businesses. And I think you have a, a... bit of things you want to talk about, about what not to do in making decisions in corporations or just making decisions? There is a lot. Um, there is really a lot. And I think that the, the place that I came from is that you have, you have a, an organization that is tasked with building something. And in software or in IT in general, you need to make decisions to be able to build something, um, anything. <laughs> you have to decide what is outside of the project as much as what's inside. And, and as a matter of fact, at the beginning, it's much more important to decide what's not part of the project. And um, in different types of organizations, there are different types of anti-patterns in terms of uh, the friction or the difficulty that you may have getting these decisions. It may be uh, that there is resistance to commitment at all levels. Uh, there could be some kind of cowardice. I, I don't want to be responsible with, for this project if things go badly and uh, it has my fingerprints on it. It's, it's funny because typically people who think that way are 599 in line for the blame. But there is, um, there is quite a bit of that. And I would actually say that is... The there could be all sorts of reasons. Yeah. I would, that's, I would say that's the number one reason is people don't want to take the blame. That's it, the one well, um, yeah, I agree with that completely. Yeah, <laughs> it it depends. Um, it depends whether you're facing managers that don't want to take a decision, or individual contributors, or whether you're facing people that are directly benefiting from the project or not. So, and I think that's that's a reason why not taking the blame stands out so much uh, because often you need people that are on other teams to commit to your project. Um, let's say I'm shipping a product at Red Hat. I will need the the team that manages the the package repositories or the container registry to ship my software eventually. And uh, while that is their job, it's really not measured in terms of, did you ship 500 containers this year or did you ship 200 containers this year? 
Texas Federico is coming and asking for one more container. It doesn't do anything for them. It's just extra work. So um, you could legitimately see somebody that's in another part of the organization saying, well, yes, get in line. Uh, we have no hurry. It will ship when it ships. Or the way I like to think about this is if I, uh, let's say I need a, a computer host um, for one of my projects and I need IT to go and provide, provision it. Technically, that's IT's job. But again, same pattern. It, they're not measured on how many computers or how many VMs they ship. They are just measured on whatever their vice president decided that they should be measured, which is usually very disconnected from what the customers care about. How much, how much money did you save last year? Yes, that, exactly. That's, that's so the typical. Does, do, does the customer care about that? Not really. But and that's what the, the VP is being measured for. So uh, when Federico goes and says, IT, I need, um, I need a server and it has to have Apache on it and um, an SSL certificate because I'm going to make these secure connections, 80 terabytes of storage for packages, and it needs to live for the next six years because that's going to be the life cycle of the project. And I would like that next week. Probably I'm not going to even get an answer by next week in most, in most companies. What is going to happen is that they're going to tell me to fill a lot of forms. But if we leave aside what actually happens, their thought process is what, is what, it's, uh, what is interesting here. I just added something to their to-do list. There is no benefit for them. It's not making them look better in front of their vice president. It's just more work. So from their point of view, from their, bat, uh, their negotiation theory point of view, this project has zero value. It's just a cost. If I can be dissuaded and go away with enough paperwork or enough friction or come back next year when we have a fresh queue, and that's, that's only a benefit. Now, obviously, people try to do their job. Um, individuals usually have their heart in the right places, but the organizations are, are mechanical, and this is the automatic result. So um, the way I look at this, is their BATNA, their best alternative to negotiation with me is for me to give up. And um, how do you change that? Well, the most obvious thing is that you could use your temper. And then suddenly they have to fight you. And <laughs> their uh, alternative to a negotiated settlement suddenly became, whoa, 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 let's just agree. It's much better than having a fight. But that obviously is not the way we want to do things. So the question is, how do you get some movement without opening a can of whoop-ass, which is a terrible <laughs> way to manage things. So, Federico, are you saying that this dysfunction, this disconnection between the different groups is what's causing the indecision? As in, you, you've given this example, I've got a product I need to ship. I, have, I rely on an ops team or some kind of a team that's going to deliver that artifact for me. But they're so yeah. difficult to work with and not interested in my project because it doesn't help them at all that that's where uh, me going back to having this product to ship might decide to not bother with the project because the other teams in my organization are too difficult to work with? That's, uh, that's typically the way it happens because you have organizations that are tens of thousands of people. So you'll have the people that are part of the immediate organization that cares about the project. Um, so let's say I'm part of the storage organization in Red Hat. We make storage products. There are maybe 500 people in my group and we make storage. If uh, I come up with, an, or rather somebody above me comes up with an idea for a new storage product and tells me to make it happen, we are all committed to the strategy after we debate it long enough. But there are another 14,500 people in Red Hat that are not part of storage. Their mission is not to ship new storage. They're part of other silos. 
and uh, therefore they have different priorities and different objectives. That's perfectly normal. The problem is that in corporate structures, typically uh, success comes from having objectives that come from the customer. And so the, the product shipping organization better be plugged into the customer, otherwise you've failed already. But the internal, uh, the internal groups, the ones that we usually call cost centers, those are usually very removed from the customer. They have a very abstract idea of what, what the customer wants. Um, Ross's example of, did you save on budget? And mm. sure, the customer doesn't want the price to be too high, but that's three or four orders of effect removed from, from what the customer has asked for, whether we saved on IT or not, right? So there is, there is a little bit of a problem of getting lost in the fact that different groups have different uh, priorities. And I think the, the way I like to rationalize this is that there, uh, we have OKRs as a way to, to measure performance. At least in, in IT, we think OKRs are the best thing available. We can debate that, but supposedly it's the state of the art. So that gives us a better alternative to opening the can of Wubass uh, as a way to change the, the negotiation balance, which is, look, um, I have an, a corporate level OKR to ship this product or a business unit level OKR to ship this product, whichever it may be. You need to cooperate to this. And if you do, the responsibility on success or failure stays with me. If you do not, if you're basically sandbagging me and say, come back next year because we have other things to do, then the responsibility is on you. You have made the corporate level OKR fail because IT couldn't give me a, I don't know, server. So uh, that is a much more civilized way to, to escalate the problem. And I think I'm growing to like Jeff Bezos' argument that you, you should escalate early. So if you, if you cannot get the commitment, I'm going to have the server next week, do the paperwork as fast as you possibly can, and then escalate. Because it's fairer to you and it's fairer to them. It's much better than eventually having a, a war of words saying, I waited for two months for you guys to decide. We just go, here is the requirement. It's very clear. You guys don't want to commit. Let's go to your vice president. And this other vice, my vice president and your vice president will decide if it's more important for you to do servers for another group or to enable this product. And if we do it in a week, then no hard feelings. You got your priorities for the work that you're doing in the data center. And I got my marching orders for the product. The problem is that most of the time this just sits for two months until somebody loses their patience, either in this theoretical example, somebody above me or, or I could lose my patience. So I, I don't know that it's always escalate early is, is yeah, the so, lesson there, I suppose. So I'm not always certain it's indecision as it is a disconnect between where the, uh, where the rewards are and where the, pitfalls are, whatever you want to say. I mean, an example I heard the other day was that in the medical system, quite often the doctor is paid by a third party and the third party and the doctor and the pharmaceutical company and the hospital are negotiating. And guess who's not at the table? The patient. And, and, the, right. reason, and the reason is, is because the patient's not paying for anything. And so what ends up happening is, is the doctor put, is put in a position where if they follow the right procedure and the patient dies, they're better off than going outside the procedure that the medical industry doesn't want 
because they're afraid of this, making this decision of going outside the standard procedure and trusting the local doctor who actually knows what they're doing and can see the physical patient. But it's better for the doctor to stay within the procedure, even if the, the patient dies or doesn't do well, than to go outside and get the person to recover because going outside and getting the person to recover can still get the doctor in trouble. Whereas if they follow the procedure, it doesn't really matter what the they're result safe. Yeah, that's right. The, the results. That, that is a that is a typical model um, uh, which comes to taking process over outcomes, which is extremely common. You follow the process, you're safe. Your pro, the program manager said that you you checked all the rules. It's fine. Um, the hospital has followed their checklist, and then everything is fine. And there is a reason why hospitals are so obsessive with checklists, by the way, which is that. Uh, there is very good demonstration that this kind of process focus in medicine uh, does a lot more good than bad. But like, like any other process, it, it can be taken to extremes. Another place where processes are really, really good is um, aircraft safety. We don't see planes crashing almost at all because everything has to follow very precise processes and every incident is investigated in detail. The problem is that when you have organizations that follow this kind of extreme things, um, when there are really no lives at stake, it's not healthcare, it's not a nuclear reactor, it's not an airplane, uh, but you're still using the heaviest possible process because it makes the managers look good, or in your example, the doctors look safe. I don't want to quote Jeff Bezos every single time I open my mouth, but uh, this kind of comes to mind. Bezos has this uh, hierarchy of um, problem types. Uh, call, he calls them type one and type two, I think, in one of his, uh, one of his uh, shareholder letters. And um, if I remember correctly, type one uh, are the ones that are easy. You make a decision, you try to make it, easy, uh, you try to make it promptly enough and rationally enough. Hopefully you have data, but he observes that typically the right time to take a decision is when you have only 70% of the data that you wish you had. Uh, otherwise, it means you've waited too long. And you just go with it. And sure enough, you will get it wrong sometimes. And I have a lengthy discussion of that and what happens then in my talk. But it's a decision that you can correct. Oh, we decided to make this pink and it turns out we don't like it. We'll make the next batch blue. It's very easy to revert. There is no cost, uh, hopefully the color choice didn't offend anybody. Uh, it's just, okay, this doesn't work, let's change it. Uh, that could be type one. Type two are uh, irreversible decisions, what uh, a, crypto Greek, a crypto geek would call a one-way hash function. You're crossing this gate and it's very hard to come back. Uh, for example, you're telling your customer, I am shutting down product X next week. If that was a bad idea, um, it's going to be very hard to walk that back with the customer. So that's an example, a very good example of a one-way decision. You're not going to have the Zoom anymore. And suddenly, lots of customers want the Zoom back. Well, mm, I don't know. It's, that's going to be hard to invert. So that kind of decision, you want to spend time. You want to use the heavy process with. If you have to delay, you delay until you're pretty sure that you got it right. You still cannot take forever because perfect quality on infinite schedule doesn't work. <laughs> you need to come to, to an end result 
but um, but you can offer more um, more time and make it more of an executive level decision. The anti-pattern that Bezos called out is that the junior managers like to imitate the senior managers, and that's the reason why one of the reasons why bureaucracy propagates. The junior managers see how the executives take these heavy decisions, and they all want to show that they can be executives, or that they all want to show that they are going to do their homework to perfection. So they use the heaviest process to decide whether the gadget that you're building is pink or blue. And that, that doesn't work. And doesn't work for a number of reasons. First, it in, increases cost and friction enormously, and it reduces the number of things that you can do, which is the part that I usually focus on, uh, being uh, somebody who uh, cares a lot about execution. But um, Bezos focuses on another thing that's equally important, which is you're going to lose your innovators. In an organization where you cannot make decisions, the innovators leave. Uh, you're describing the environments I've been in where there have been very large organizations. I've worked in some government organizations, very large bank, um, and the processes and the overhead to get anything done was enormous. And so people like uh, like me that would have been often in an innovator kind of role would get frustrated by the process and the difficulty the organization had in making a decision and after some years of trying to push that rock uphill, you just give up. So, I mean, I, I really get right. that point for sure. Tired, tired of being Sisyphus. For sure. Sorry. Yeah, man. <laughs> for those who know Greek mythology, tired of being Sisyphus. So That's let's right. go back, Frederico, to um, the taxonomy of indecision. So can you describe the entire taxonomy to us in like two minutes or less? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> but <laughs> there, is, there is no way because in, uh, here is the problem where management is kind of an art versus a, a science. It, everything has soft lines or soft edges. And so typically uh, the way I describe this is, okay, we're going to have a management discussion instead of a technical talk today. Take what you find useful, leave the rest. Because pretty much any management advice that you can give, especially at the middle management level where people are involved, will work with some people, will work in some organizations and not in others. Usually the disclaimer for this talk is that if you're working in an organization where all the anti-patterns that I'm going over in the talk apply, then woe is you. I mean, it should take 10 companies to have this, these many uh, dysfunctions. And uh, or one these are company. not... <laughs> or yeah, you could have one uh, <laughs> one, one big. Re really big company with with many many divisions, but uh, hopefully you're not exposed to all of them at once, right? Oh. So um, the thing here is that um, these things did not start as dysfunctions. There is um, there is a very good analysis of um, of overheads uh, coming out of IBM, I believe, in the nineties. So. IBM has a long history of studying overheads, and um, and they've given us Brooks Law, obviously the the most famous law on overheads. Period. <laughs> you add people to a, a late project, therefore you make it later, in the most succinct designation. And um, uh, that was in the seventies with one of the one of the big mainframe projects uh, under Frederick Brooks. In the 90s, somebody that uh, was published in a study by Seidner here in my notes, and uh, this is reported in Matt Nicholson's book, When Computing Got Personal, um, somebody decided to go over the overheads of shipping something at IBM. 
And in the 1996 and in the 1990s incarnation of IBM, they determined that uh, this huge process designed to uh, guarantee quality in all its forms and with, uh, at that point, IBM was an 80-year-old company, had accumulated enough uh, barnacles on the hull that to ship an empty box, uh, it would have taken you nine months. Because you, you basically went through the entire process doing absolutely nothing. And, uh, and just the pure overhead would take nine months. And I, I love the study because it's so IBM. It's not we're complaining about something and then saying, well, we cannot do anything about it. Let's move on. It's we found a problem. We're going to quantify it and we're going to analyze it. And then we're going to see what we can do about it. Um, I don't know what they did about it, but in the 90s, they basically came up with this staggering number that shipping an empty box uh, from one of their hardware divisions would have taken nine months. None of this is ill-intentioned. This is all about quality, quality, quality. And that is, uh, that is basically one of the anti-patterns that you run into. We were, are fortunate enough to work in an industry where AMD and Intel give us, uh, give us uh, Moore's Law. The result of this constant growth is that success for us is defined into building something new. Uh, it's not coming from optimizing something. It's not coming from destroying something like maybe uh, a finance magnet might have by taking over a company and dismembering it. For, for computers, it's always build, build, build. This uh, results in very little cleanup. So uh, the older the organization is, um, the more process craft you have laying around. I was um, complaining to somebody a couple of months ago that Red Hat has processes still around and that were created when people were working at Compaq. And we have a lot of ex-digital uh, Compaq HP people here. Uh, or we have uh, the most egregious example is we have processes that were created when we shipped DVDs. We haven't shipped DVDs for 10 years, but nobody goes and says that quality process should die because it's about shipping DVDs. It's a quality process. Are you seriously saying that you're, we're going to reduce quality? No way. Spend three months to kill a process is not something that the manager um, is going to get any career advantage from. So it doesn't happen. And so you have more and more accumulation. And then um, at some point, it just becomes too much. Interesting. So another another. Phenomena I've noticed that you might want to comment on, or maybe not, um, in in large scale organizations, is what I call the problem of the pie, which is that when the organization is small, if you just look at a pie chart and you see each each sub organization within an organization as a slice of that pie chart, um, when the organization is small, what you'll find is you'll find that the surface area of each of those slices of the pie is largest facing outside the organization, facing the customer. As the organization gets larger and you end up building more subunits within the organization, what ends up happening is everything reverses and the amount of space between each organization is larger than the customer facing piece. And so what happens is the way to make your pie slice larger is not to build your customer-facing piece because that's a very small part of your organization, your sub-organization within the organization. Your biggest surface areas are against other organizations, other parts of your own organization. So the, so the best way to make your organization bigger and to make it look like it succeeds is to increase the size of your slice of the pie 
by taking over other parts of the organization that are adjacent to you. So that's a long explanation, but I think it's, it's kind of a variation on of empire of what usually gets called uh, empire building, I guess. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. The, the thing is, that, that stands out to me is this. Um, so I'm, we didn't do introductions. Um, I'm a product manager and I'm technically trained, but um, my career has been in product management. Wait, 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 wait. Does that mean you have technical training or does that mean you've technically been trained, but not really? <laughs> oh, uh, no. <laughs> Good one. Yeah. Which of those two so, do you mean? <laughs> uh, I'm technically trained. So I, uh, I have an undergraduate in computer science and, and a master's in computer science. I don't get to hide behind. I'm an MBA, therefore I don't have the stamp. But uh, career-wise, I'm a, I'm a product manager. So um, I take decisions and try to make plans, and that sort of thing. Talk to customers, hear what their problems are. Uh, usually, the way what you're describing manifests to me is um, that when we are having a discussion um, between managers to be cleared decks of whatever decisions are required of us this week, the, the tactical stuff. Are we going to approve this exception? Are we going to uh, delay the schedule? That kind of thing. A lot of um, inquiries are made into product managers saying, well, at, at least I'd like to think in healthy organizations and uh, mine is good, at least in this regard. We always ask ourselves what matters to the customer. Uh, but uh, time and again, while you're having these discussions, you have to separate what are the internal organization motives versus what what matters to the customer. So uh, people who work with me are extremely patient because I always say the same thing. When they ask me what, uh, what are the weights on the scale of this balance, I usually reply with, these are the red hat problems, meaning what the internal uh, weights. This team wants that, this engineer wants that, and so on, which we should be aware of. It's, we don't want to ignore our own colleagues. But I make it a point to distinguish it from, and these are the customer problems, which should take priority. So we try to take the decision based on what we understand is the customer, uh, the customer priority in that situation. And then we see what we can do to accommodate the internal side. I think that in a lot of organizations, um, uh, what you said uh, happens, which is that ultimately you spend more time focusing inward uh, about what other teams in the company want or care about rather than uh, what the ultimate customer cares about. And um, uh, I think um, there is this saying uh, that is popular among product, amongst product managers, and I'm, I'm forgetting who the originator is, uh, which is uh, the answer is not in the building. <laughs> And when, when somebody asks a question that you don't want to go interview all of your colleagues, you want to go interview the customer. And that's, that's basically the short code for that. We want to go out of, of the usual echo chamber and see what's, what is the outside input. I got a question for you, Federico. So I've been in these large organizations and been victimized by some of these decision-making indecision processes and so on. Got frustrated and <laughs> mostly I've been working for myself. Mostly have been working for myself or working for smaller, smaller companies. I can relate. I get frustrated all the time. So believe me, it, it does happen. So, but, well, the, well, that's the question. Is there a way if you're, you know, you, you get frustrated by these kind of things, how do you survive in a large organization and not give it up after a couple of years? 
Ah, that's a that's a good question. It's it's also a long answer. <laughs> I think the the number one factor is how upset you get. Sometimes there are things that are just too much. So if if things are just it's not um, friction or effort or or any incidental thing, it's like you are honestly upset and like infuriated. Something really got under your skin. I have this personal rule that if I get really upset. Uh, more than twice a year. The third time I stop whatever I'm doing, doesn't matter what it is, I go to my favorite conference room down the hall and uh, lock myself in looking at the sunset and start to think about whether I want to work here or not. And that is a very uh, good sanity check because sometimes it's too much. Like you have to have a barrier. It's like, all right, they managed to upset me twice a year. It's okay, it will happen. More than twice a year, you have to stop and ask yourself, why are you doing this? Is it really worth it to you? Uh, maybe, maybe if it doesn't look like it makes sense, uh, maybe it doesn't make sense. And you have to ask yourself this question like you obviously have. That's the first, I would say it's step number zero, right? Um, I've been here, I'm in my seventh year, so I'm not going to disclose the number of times that I've gone into that conference room, but um, <laughs> just the fact that I have a procedure for this can tell you that it has happened more than once. Not too often, but it, it does happen, and I have to ask myself this question. Now, uh, th that is the reality of large organizations. There is going to be friction, and you are sort of the master of how to make your team navigate through this uh, um, paper war. The, the Germans have this beautiful word, Papierkrieg, the paper war, which is the, the bureaucracy in their, in their view. And so are you going to continue waging the paper war, or are you going to go and do something else? But once you decide that you're going to continue waging the paper war, then you have to decide what the rules of engagement are and what is that you're going to do. So the first thing for me is that you have to understand, and, and this talk that we're discussing from uh, Open Source Summit is targeted at middle managers. It's something that I developed so that my team knows how I come to a decision. They don't see it as a mystery thing. And it's not meant for other managers that understand it very well, but it's meant for individual engineers. So they don't think there is an idiot over there in product management taking decisions for me, and I don't understand how it's coming. Uh, so it, it is meant as, a, as an internal thing, but then it, it grew into something more interesting, and we decided to make it public. The, the first thing you as a middle manager have to realize is that you are not able to affect everything. In, um, in a small organization, you may be able to just walk up to the CEO and say, this doesn't make sense, let's change it. And, and maybe they say yes. In a big organization, even if you can walk up to the CEO, that's still not a good idea. You have to accept the fact that there are many more problems than the ones that you can address. There are things that are outside of your scope. And the typical classical example here is the strategy. If you're a middle manager, you're not making strategy. Uh, the senior managers or somebody in the corner office is making strategy. You want to change the strategy, you can input to the strategy if the organization wants your input. Most large corporations don't want your input. It doesn't matter what they are saying. I mean, at Red Hat, we say wonderful things. We want to hear everybody out. But um, the reality is that you cannot listen to 15,000 people and account for everything that everybody thinks. So, uh, yes... As a manager, I want to be open and I want to hear what everybody has to say, but I can be the target of 300 people and maybe 30 want to tell me what they're, what they're saying and I can listen to them. At, at large scale, it's simply not possible. So you can't affect everything. 
you have to decide that you're going to be focused and worried about the things that you can't change. That's the first thing. Then um, the second thing is that you want to stay away from too much planning. Large organizations uh, have an implicit bias for planning because of what we were saying before the, the Bezos story, the managers want to look like the big managers. And so they use the heaviest possible process to show that they could be in the corner office and, and do take the really hard decisions. But when you're taking the decision of what parking spot am I going to park in, the value is on whether you take the decision in five seconds. If I'm going to take the decision and it takes me a week, that is useless. And there are plenty of middle managers that for one reason or another stall making decisions. One could be blame aversion, uh, who were saying earlier. Another one could be uh, people who come from a technical background are terribly um, concerned with making mistakes. And uh, there is an at length discussion of this in the talk. And basically the point is, you are going to be wrong. You're, if you are a leader and you're making decisions, the question is whether you're wrong 50% of the time or 5% mm -hmm. of the time. So you have to make yourself comfortable with the fact that you're going to make mistakes. You have to decide where you're going to allow these mistakes. If your decision is, am I going to build, am I going to build my platform on Kubernetes or Mesos or uh, Docker Swarm? That is a decision that's worth spending three months on because if you get it wrong, you're going to get five years of experience on how container orchestration works and then you're going to rebuild your product five years later using the winning technology. So it's worth three months of your time or four if you need four, although you shouldn't. But if the decision is, are we going to do this with a binary or with a script? <laughs> or uh, is this going to be running on this server or that server? Okay, let's hear out what people have to say, make sure to follow the right experts, and turn around the decision as fast as you physically can. If you can turn it around in 24 hours, that's good. If you can't, you should be asking yourself why. As a middle manager, you should have a couple of momentous decisions a year that are worth spending weeks on, if you're in a strategic enough position. Most of your decisions are not that strategic. So... You can just say, okay, um, what are the options? And pick one. And if you are right 75% of the time, which is horrible, you're wrong once every four decisions you make, but you are taking the decisions on the spot or in five minutes or in one day, you're still better than a manager that, has, that takes a week to give you 80% correct rate. So um, make yourself comfortable with the idea that you're going to be wrong. You're still going to be right more than 10 more than um, than one in 10. I mean, if you, as a manager, you get more than one thing in 10 wrong, people are not going to tolerate you. You're not going to be around for that long. But uh, you have to make yourself comfortable with the fact that the small stuff, your team is going to catch you and say, hey, woo, you missed this thing. We need to change that. And because there are type one decisions uh, in the sense of the Bezos classification, it's fine. You change it. Oh, sorry, I missed that. I was on holiday or I was still on holiday. I should have been thinking. Um, it happens. Um, so because of this bias to too much planning and the fact that companies will always give you lots of people to do planning, you know, they always have more managers around than you need when you're in a large organization. You might not have enough engineers uh, sympathizing with that IT group that I was discussing earlier that cannot deliver the server, but they certainly have lots of managers to send back paperwork sign-off requests. So. Because of this, uh, there is this well-intentioned 
tendency towards more and more and more process. And technical people enhance this. Technical people like rules. So um, I, as somebody who is technically trained, going back to Russell's joke, uh, I have to check myself that I want to do planning, but I have to decide where, where is that is the line of too much planning. And generally, the value of planning is in the exercise. It's not in the plan itself. You've built a plan. You've considered every possible alternative. You've decided what the pros and cons were. The experts in every single part of the, of the product told you why something is good and why something is bad. That is what's worth it. So I think uh, General Eisenhower said that plan, plans are useless, but planning is invaluable. And, and that's exactly where, uh, where this falls. You want to do enough planning, but you don't want to be stuck in endless planning. And the way I usually resolve this is that I, I separate the managers in a different track and they do planning on their own time, uh, on their own schedule, I mean, while the engineers have to be decoupled and they always have the next step. So if we decide to plan forever on something, maybe we're wasting some manager time, but we're not wasting engineering team time. Um, Although it's funny, the managers are more expensive, generally speaking, time-wise. They are, but they are, but there, there are fewer of them, right? So <laughs> you have ten managers and a hundred engineers, and besides, um, generally the managers are paid for this, right? We're generally unappreciative of managers, and we make jokes about them, but they are here to do the stuff that's not fun, right? So it's like, okay, we want to discuss this a couple more times. Let's but let's just make sure that we're not stalling a hundred engineers while we take this decision. So somebody has to basically uh, enforce the fact that um, thinking too much will kill you. So execution eats strategy for lunch, I think Peter Drucker said. So as a product manager or in general, as a middle manager, you're well positioned to basically nip the too much thinking by saying we have to move forward Program managers can do the same thing. Like we have to have the plan finished by this date. Otherwise we're stalling the work of a hundred people and that's not going to be okay. There are three more if you want to hear the full answer. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, I think, I think we are now, I think we are now at the point where we need to close off. So it was a really, really good conversation though. Now, where can people find your work in general and this particular talk was at OSS. Have you given it other places as well? Yeah, I've uh, I presented this at All Things Open. I presented it at OSS. Um, there is a very good recording of it from uh, Boston Linux and Unix user group, our local user group. Uh, so that's probably my um, my favorite uh, recorded track. I can send you the link if you want to put it yeah. in the in the resources. Yeah, it's. Um, it's an interesting thing to muse about because it's an open-ended problem with, with no straight answer. You cannot just say, I'm going to give you the checklist and you're going to solve your organization. Everything is going to be hunky-dory if you just follow these 10 steps. And that's why we have so many management consultants, right? But you can rationally make things better. And um, there isn't a lot of good thinking for middle management. There are lots of tactical books like Harvard, um, uh, Harvard Business Review, um, things about like how to conduct meetings or how to do budget planning, but they don't really have a guide to organizational wrangling kind of thing. So um, that's kind of what drove me to this. And the other thing is that I kind of see this as a layered cake. One is the, this is the tactical layer of 
the number one thing that you need to get drive execution is is decisions. So what is that stands in the way of decisions? And next layer is how are you going to build a reasonable strategy? In between the two is probably another one, which is um, what you could call rules for rebels. Uh, sort of if it was uh, your co-host that still wants to drive innovation in the in the um, giant uh, organization, how can he uh, how can he try and survive this despite all the all the obstacles, right? I think it's easier to break the the management problem in in this sort of separate layers because if you if you just look at it as a one giant thing, it's it's just too much. It's it's overwhelming because of the number of failed things that you can see, and because it's hard to break them into uh, cohesive groups. But if you look at it as, can we take decisions and do so promptly? Can we uh, decide what is that we do day to day versus not do day to day? Can we decide what is the long-term strategy and are we authorized to contribute to it or is it something that comes from the corner office? doesn't matter as long as you're clear which one of the two it is. So, um, so, yeah, so good. that's kind of my thinking. All right. Awesome. Now, Ethan, where can people get in touch yeah. with you? I don't know where to get in touch with you anymore. Yeah, sure you do. <laughs> EthanCBanks.com. You can figure out the rest from there pretty much. I'm on Twitter and so on. And also PacketPushers.net uh, if you want to hear me on some other podcasts. Of course, Packet Pushers. And I'm Russ White. You can always find me at Rule11.tech and here on The Hedge. Frederico, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this. Um, and we'll try to get you back on sometime to continue talking about indecision or uh, other topics. Absolutely. There is... Um... There is an infinity of material in this space. And uh, also, I, I suppose I should mention, I have been working on, uh, on the second edition of O'Reilly's Peccary book, we call it, which is the Amazon AWS architecture book. So we can also talk about that at some point. Yeah. If we want to go down the technical path instead of yes. the, the management path. Of course, that would be awesome. All right. Well, thanks a lot. And we'll catch you next time on The Hedge. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.